Are you wearing your indoor Crocs or your outdoor Crocs? Hi, it's Kathy, and I'm so excited to have another longtime school friend on the podcast. So this guest has always impressed me as a determined creative spirit. It's always well moisturized <laughs> and is someone who might consider getting a watch like 10 years ago. <laughs> Chantal, welcome to Indoor Crocs. Hi, thank you for having me. How have you been? I've been good. So we're going to get into it. But would you like to summarise what your current activities are to our listeners? Ooh. So I'm a medical student. I've been on a gap year and that's been really good. But I'm returning to study soon. I want to start off with your name. You go by your middle name. Have you always gone by your middle name? And does anyone call you by your first name? Yeah, so my full name is Suniva Chantel Salira, but since I was born, everyone's called me Chantel. And I think it took me a couple of years to even realise Suniva was my name. Really? <laughs> yeah, because yeah, everyone called me Chantel. My parents said that they picked the name Chantel, and then I think my aunt picked the name Suniva. Mm. My dad said the most beautiful people in the world have three names. <laughs> I also think that it's really cool that maybe one day I could decide to just change my name, and it's fine, you know? Mm. I could just decide to be called Suniva oh, and yeah. introduce myself yeah. as Suniva and no one would know. <laughs> do you have a middle name? I do. My middle name is my Chinese name. Jian Ying. Um, I feel like it's quite common to have but your ethnic name as your middle name. Some mm. people have it as their first names and they have their English names as their second name. Yeah. But then my parents did it so that it would just be easier for me to integrate mm. so other kids wouldn't mispronounce my name and teachers and stuff. Okay. Does anyone call you by your Chinese name? I guess my parents sometimes, obviously my relatives, but not a lot of people know because mm. we don't have many relatives here anyway. I think it's the same with Chantal, I guess the opposite of your situation. Most people call me by my middle name and you kind of have to know me properly to even know that my first name is different. Yeah. Can you describe your upbringing? So I was born in Tanzania. I moved when I was five to a small town in England, so random. I've grown up with my mum and my two brothers. I'm the oldest sibling. How would you sum up your secondary school experience? A major part of my secondary school experience was gayness. <laughs> I feel really lucky to have been able to go to a school where people embraced and accepted how weird I was. Because <laughs> I hear other people's experiences of secondary school and like they were bullied. They became smaller throughout secondary school and then flourished into themselves at university. But for me, secondary school was me being weird. And I guess some people didn't like it, but the people who did like it, were great, you know? I had lots of people who encouraged me to be myself. I developed lots of crushes. It was an all-girls school. <laughs> Being encouraged to just be weird and myself has really kind of shaped the person I am today because now I actively shy away from diminishing myself. Like okay. sometimes I will want to do things that make me smaller to make other people comfortable and I will remind myself, you don't have to do that because yeah, maybe some people will find it weird, but the people who don't, they are your people. Yeah, I don't really think I've ever actually experienced much bullying. Not in primary school, 
in secondary school, no university, no one cares about you. <laughs> I genuinely, I think yeah, it's also yeah. similarly to racism. When I got to uni, that was like the first major shock for me. Mm. Like obviously it wasn't anything outright, it was just casual. But because I had never really experienced that before, mm. I took it very personally. Yeah. yeah. Like I always feel like I had quite a sheltered upbringing yeah in school people were generally accepting or if they had a problem with you you'd never find out about it yeah because they never said so i would just pretend there was no problem you know i feel like when you first experience that it is really shocking then it does kind of wind you i feel like i definitely experienced microaggressions throughout my entire life Mm -hmm. since i was a small kid but i didn't have the vocab for it so then when I did, I was whoa. Because <laughs> you don't feel crazy. You realise this is messed up, actually. Even though it's not overt racism, I didn't experience much violent racism. Though microaggressions are violent. Yeah, because I think that overt racism in general isn't really socially acceptable anymore. Yeah. That's why yeah. it comes in these other forms that are much more difficult to detect even, let alone, yeah. like, rebuff or, you know, it's yeah. often a lot, it takes me a while to process, and then I realise, oh, someone said something racist, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And then the moment has passed, and... And you can't do anything about it. Yeah! I still feel like I don't address it in the right way. It's just instinctual to just laugh. Definitely. I don't often know how to address it, or even how to defend myself. I'm still at that point where I'm identifying and then when I have identified it, I think most of the time I just distance myself from that person or make an excuse, I don't know. Yeah, it's really hard because you don't want to do it around the wrong person as well. You don't want to be like, oh, you can't say that. (laughs) And then it's like the wrong person for that and then it becomes like a big thing. What I've experienced is a feeling of weirdness, like it just feels off something feels weird and you can tell like you're being mistreated or something is off but you don't actually know why or what's going on and then later when you think about it that's when I normally am like oh okay maybe they were racist you know or it's like subtle differences in the way you're being treated yeah it's just difficult when obviously you don't know how that person is thinking to say those words. I think often Mm. I experience a lot of cognitive dissonance because a lot of it isn't even meant intentionally. As Mm. in someone is just maybe trying to connect with you and they don't know how to do it. But I mean, like, commenting on your race is is not a thing. Don't don't, don't do it. Oh my gosh, yeah. It happens so many times where people are just trying to connect in their own weird way, but it makes you feel really uncomfortable. Yeah, Um, it's just that feeling. You just know something's off, but you're not quite sure what it is. Yeah. Because someone could be friendly to you. Yeah, but still racist. (laughs) You know, it's like you're trying, but you're not quite there. (laughs) Yeah, I had to learn that random people coming up to me and touching my hair wasn't okay and that's a very basic one Mm. but growing up the town that I grew up in was white so it was a normal thing for me throughout my childhood for people to come up and touch my hair or be like oh you look so good and touch my hair old women just random people in shops and stuff really yeah so it took me a really long time to realize 
they shouldn't be doing that and that wasn't a normal thing <laughs> it can be tricky when you can tell like people don't mean it in that way but also you still don't have to put up with it going back to school and you said that you felt accepted were you involved in many extracurriculars i love my extracurriculars i did loads of stuff i did a podcast like this <laughs> in school my inspiration yeah because i wanted to be a radio presenter when i was younger I think it was like year 12. I was like, oh, this is my last chance to do a school radio. That turned into a podcast. <laughs> um, what else do I like to do? I had this idea for creating a space for people of color because that's what my friendship group was. We were all, somehow we'd all just come together accidentally. And it does happen because we're a place of safety for each other. I don't think it was accidental. Oh. As in, I think when you're in a class yeah and to be honest there was a fair number of us who were minorities mm. so if anything just that in common yeah and it pulls you together yeah, yeah. so we had our mini community we did and it was so it was so sweet like i said i felt like i didn't have to diminish myself i could just be myself and be annoying which i was <laughs> um but I kind of found so much safety in that um, diverse friend group that we had. So I wanted to make a club so other people could join, you know, and create that for themselves. It was going to be called All Colours. I worked really, really hard, actually, <laughs> on the idea, on getting permission to do it. But it became something a bit different. I had wanted it to be a space just for people of colour, but then the kind of lead teacher, you had to have a teacher supervising. Okay. So the teacher who was supervising was very big on queer inclusivity, which is good because I'm queer, you know, I wanted a space for queer people as well because we didn't have like a pride sock, anything like that either. But the intention was for it to be a space for people of colour. And I got that there was a need for a queer space, but we tried to do both. We tried to make it both queer and a space for people of colour. And it kind of like didn't work, didn't become what I had imagined or envisioned. It taught me a lot about intersectionality because I realised queerness is more accepted in white spaces. I wouldn't say there's fewer queer people of colour, but there's fewer safe spaces for queer people of colour. I see. And so when you just say a space is queer or a space is LGBT friendly or whatever, the people who are going to come flocking are white queers, right? Oh. <laughs> yeah. And so the space, it was just like, it was a mess. The club being a space for both people of colour and LGBT people was just really messy and it didn't really work because there were a lot of white queer people there but when you come into a space thinking oh this is supposed to be for people of color and you see a bunch of white people mm. it you know it doesn't feel like a safe space for for you then okay so it just became like a whole mess there wasn't kind of space for each group individually and i think there's definitely space to do both but you can't attend that club and ignore the like privilege that white people have even though they have a marginalized identity being lgbtq plus 
that doesn't take away their white privilege. And we would have conversations about race and people would say really insensitive things. Like people tried to listen and it wasn't intentional because they were there to try and listen, right? That's what the space was for, inclusivity and stuff. But it was just a strange space. It didn't work because as a person of color, you want to speak about what you're experiencing with nuance and with people who understand, yes, right? Yes, of course. And as a queer person, you also want the same. So it kind of didn't work. Yeah. And I don't know what became of it because I only ran it for a year. <laughs> <laughs> but it was kind of sad. I lost my like love for it because it wasn't what I wanted it to be. I mean, have you explored those spaces at university? We rebooted Pride Society at my university. It had died for a couple of years. Since I started, we hadn't had one. And so two years ago, I worked with a couple of my friends and we rebooted the society. I was secretary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was really cool. I found as well, living in London, it's a really good place for finding spaces that are specific to you and your identity. So when I want to find events for black queer people, I can literally type black queer events London and find spaces that are specifically for me. And that is really great because it feels completely safe, you know? Mm. And I, I do really like that about London and where I live. Yeah. Nice. Have you found that much at uni? Have you been able to find like spaces that feel safe for you and comfortable? Well, <laughs> that, <laughs> I think when I went to uni for the first time, it was a struggle to find other Asians, mm. which surprised me a lot. Like I never thought going into uni that I'd have to join an Asian society to meet Asians. I think on my course, there were obviously some Asians, but a lot of them were international students who I did befriend but it wasn't the same experience that I'd had, right? Yeah. So when I was looking for that, I ended up joining Abacus, which is like the British Chinese society. Mm. And then you kind of just wander around the other Asian societies as well. So, you know, there's a Filipino society, a Malaysian society. Um, I formed a friendship group who was kind of in the Filipino society, Philsog and Abacus. But what's funny is that when I went to university, the second time, I ended up just basically integrating myself within Philsock. And mm. so people thought I was Filipino. I wasn't. <laughs> but it's just, there was space for me there. Yeah. Don't really know how to explain it. It's just, I guess I felt like people were more friendly and it was less cliquey. Oh. I think it's also because there were less people in society. Whereas the yeah. second abacus I went to was very large. Mm. And so... There were kind of too many people. It was a bit overwhelming to make friendships. And especially being a bit older, I also wanted to, you know, meet people who were my age, but they'd mm. already got their groups. But definitely been an experience. Societies have been quite important in my friendship making, I'd say. I love that you went out there as well and looked for people like you. And you found them in the end. It's so cliche, but uni is what you make of it, you know. If you don't go out there and try to make friends or meet people who you want to meet, you're not going to meet them. Yeah. If you sit there and just wait for something to happen... It won't. Yeah. <laughs> and that sums up adult friendships, I think. 
literally yes, you I need agree. to put effort in otherwise no one will come to you we're all so busy just trying to survive adult life yeah it is really hard to connect with new people did you find when you were at uni everyone was basically younger than you yes <laughs> i think i've met maybe one or two people who are like my year my age mm. but also doesn't help that i have a september birthday so you know during mm. freshers week yeah, I turned 21, <laughs> I turned 19. <laughs> For me, I felt like sometimes there was a bit of an age stigma, but a lot of the times it was more me internalizing. No one mm. else cared. But also, because I have a baby face, no one knew, <laughs> unless I told them. And so I think that also confused me because I was uh. like, I felt like by not telling people, I was like hiding something or I was lying. Uh. But then like, I also felt like, I shouldn't feel obliged to tell people. It was confusing, but you know, we're past that now. <laughs> I now live with medics and a PhD student, so. Oh wow, okay. <laughs> you found the grannies. <laughs> no, I'm telling you, the number of my friends at uni who are younger than me call me grandma. Oh like, really? I'm, I mean, I'm a bit of a grandma, so you know, <laughs> they're not wrong. I feel like the more I'm growing up, the more I ease into grandmahood. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to go out, okay? I want to sit with my cup of tea. That is what I enjoy now. Yeah. <laughs> so moving from education, mm. I want to ask you a bit about your part-time work because I didn't do any part-time work until I started uni. But I remember tutoring, used to do so many things yeah. whilst we were in school. Do you remember what your first job was? Yeah, my first job was a paper round. <laughs> How old were you? I was 13 or 14, 30? something like that. Yeah, it was hard. Oh my gosh, especially as a late person. I had to be there at 7 a.m. <laughs> I have a brother who's one year younger than me and we did the paper round together and it was really hard. Waking up early and then going out. Even in winter, we would go out on our bikes drop people's papers off in front of their house or whatever. I remember cycling up the hills and like being exhausted. <laughs> yeah. I used to listen to music while I was cycling and it was so much fun actually. I would sing, I didn't care what time it was. It's my time. <laughs> and it was really good for kind of bonding with my brother as well. It was something we did together. He always did his paper round really fast. So <laughs> When I got to like a hard bit on my paper round where our kind of paths connected, I would call him and I'd be like, oh, please, can you deliver um, a couple of my papers for me? And he'd be like, fine. Oh. <laughs> now I look back on it really fondly. But um, at the time I was like, wow, this is a struggle. <laughs> but it was actually really good because it didn't take anything out of my day, you know, and I would start my day really early then. But also it meant I didn't get lions, which was really annoying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm. But I enjoyed it. It was exercise too. And then after that job, I worked at a tuition center when I was 16 or 17. And that was not fun. <laughs> it was really stressful actually, because that was my first job that was like proper job. Okay. Um, so I had shifts and I had to clock in and out and I had to ask for time off and stuff. And it was just, I think, overwhelming, especially when I was doing my A-levels at the same time. 
it was really stressful actually i only did it for about six months because it was too much mm. and also a big part of it was we were under so much pressure at that job that i didn't feel like i was helping the kids um learn oh. properly yeah so it would be maybe eight children and then me and i'm still a child anyway like i'm 17 but because of the time pressure I wasn't able to really help the children. So I think I didn't even feel passionate about what I was doing anyway. So oh. it was hard to stay in it. But it was good to have the money. It was better than paper and money because for our paper round, we'd get something like 10 pounds for a day of doing it. So maybe I'd make like 20, 30 pounds a week. Yeah, mm. which is not very good. But at the time I felt like I was rich. <laughs> <laughs> Balling. <laughs> I go to the shop after school with my money, get snacks. <laughs> so let's move on to your passions. I know you have a lot of interests and I first want to ask you about pole dancing. What got you into it and how does it make you feel? Oh, oh my gosh, I love it. First of all, it makes me feel great. I started it at uni in my first year. I had made a couple of friends. They're still my friends today. Aww. Yeah. They'd said to me, we're going to pole. Do you want to come? And I was like, sure. You know, <laughs> I had been looking at the society as well on the website before I joined. Um, but it wasn't something I was serious about. But I went that first day and it was so fun. And yeah, I haven't stopped since. I mean, I have stopped COVID and stuff, but I love it. I do it two, three times a week now. And in September, I'm going to be president of Pulse Society at my uni. Yeah. But I love it. It makes me feel strong. It makes me use my body in ways I never have before. Every time I go, I just feel better afterwards. And it's taught me a lot about being sexy and embracing my sexuality because I have always felt kind of uncomfortable with being sexy, like I was putting on an act. So at the beginning when they'd say, oh, do this move, but like make it look sexy. I would just feel like, oh, I don't know how to do that. And then I just do it like goofily, you know, I'd giggle and stuff. Mm. But the more I've done it, the more I've kind of leaned into that and like really, you know, do the dances, like getting into the dances and really enjoying myself. And I, yeah, I feel like that's kind of like me growing up as well, embracing, yeah, that part of me. <laughs> Yeah, I've never tried pole. I feel like I don't have the strength for it. I feel like you should give it a go. Come come to my society. <laughs> I don't feel like it's all about strength. That is part of it sometimes, depending on what moves you want to do. But there's balance involved. And also your strength builds. The more you practice, the better you get at it. Like I said, it's using muscles that you don't really use otherwise. So when you start off, it's painful and you're quite weak and it's like, whoa, you made that look so simple. Why is it so hard? <laughs> um, but you kind of, you build that strength. It's so fun. And everyone is really encouraging as well. When you get a move that you've been practicing, the people around you are always like, woo, well done. And you just feel so good. Aww. I would definitely recommend it if you just want to try something new. And another thing I love about pole is there isn't a body type for it. Not to say there is a body type for sports or that there should be, but 
it doesn't matter about what you look like or like what your strength is like or anything. Anyone can do it and anyone can get good at it as far as they want to take it, which is what I love. It's not about your kind of innate biology, if that makes sense. When I look at the instructors and the people who've been doing it for years, they all look really different. And I love that because it makes me feel like I can do it too. You know, there's lots of different kinds of people succeeding in it. So I don't need to, you know, have a runner's physique or have a bodybuilder's physique or, you know what I mean? Or, or be a specific kind of person to do it. So would you say that pole is quite an inclusive space? I think so. Ahead of this society that I'm trying to run, I've been trying to learn about how I can make it more inclusive um, because there's definitely ways that it kind of lacks accessibility sometimes and lacks inclusivity, but generally it's a really safe space and it is, yeah, really inclusive, at least the spaces I've been in. I mean, in the classes, you're kind of half dressed anyway, <laughs> so it needs to be a safe space, really there's like certain ways you do that. Like for us, we're gonna have a rule where no one can be in the room unless they're on the poles and taking part to like stop people coming in and creeping. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <I see. laughs> yeah, so stuff like that. You do have to watch out for it and safeguard people. But generally, yeah, it, it is like a really inclusive. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. So, what is one of your other interests? Poetry. <laughs> I hesitate to call myself a poet, but I am a poet. Okay? <laughs> I write poetry and I perform. Can you share a poem you've written and elaborate on the emotions and experiences it encapsulates? This is a really interesting question because I haven't written in a really long time. I don't know why, I just have been lacking inspiration. I used to go out into the fields and write and it used to kind of pour out of me. I don't know how else to describe it, but I haven't had that as much recently. So this is the only poem that I've written in 2023. Um, it also has no name. I don't know what it's called. I bask in your light. You are the bright hot that burns and makes rivers out of ice. Yet today, you are a blessing. A brief moment of relief in the bitter cold of this country that is not mine. You shine and it feels like both a greeting and a memory. I, I love your performing voice. <laughs> What is my performing voice? It's just very clear and ah. the rhythm, you know, you had this rhythm to the words that you were saying. Yeah. Um, it's literally the way I write it, if that makes sense. So yeah. when I read it in my head, that's how I hear it. Yeah, it was really calming. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I think my genre of poetry is like mesmerizing. Mesmerizing. <laughs> like, listen to my voice and I want you to feel the words. I have some poems that maybe the themes won't make sense to other people because it's about my experiences, but I want when people listen for them to hear the words and feel, you know, an emotion coming through. So, what is the poem about? Guess. 
I'm getting undertones of diaspora, belonging. Okay, let me tell you about the day I wrote this. You know how when winter comes, we get less sunlight and we get more sad and stuff? I always feel like that doesn't happen to me. <laughs> you don't get seasonal depression? No, 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 I do. But I tell myself that won't happen to me. <laughs> but then it does. And it's like a slow, you know, as the daylight hours decrease and it gets colder, the world literally feels less inhabitable. That is how I describe it to myself. It feels like the world doesn't want you to be outside. Because <laughs> why is it so like gross and miserable? So I noticed as spring and summer was coming, the first bits of sunlight came out and it just felt so good. You know, and I hadn't even realized how miserable I was from the winter. But when I felt that sun on my face, I was like, I have to write about this. Cause it just feels so good. I didn't realize how much I missed it cause it's been so long, those winter months. And yeah, what you said about like belonging. Yeah, identity were a big part of it because in those winter months, it does feel like, like I said, it feels like it's inhabitable to be here. It's terrible. Why is it so cold? I want to be in bed all the time. It's so dark. And so it's just that feeling of like, I should be in Africa right now. <laughs> Even though having lived here most of my life, maybe I wouldn't find Africa completely inhabitable either. You know, identity is really complex for both of us, I think. Absolutely. You know, because I wouldn't say I was British, but if I had to defend myself, I would say I was British. And I'm not sure I would 100% fit in with people who have grown up in Africa, despite calling myself African, you know? It's really, yeah, it's a weird one. Yeah, I think I've always struggled with my cultural identity. I'm not actually sure when it started. But, so for primary school, I definitely thought I was white. Like, my peers were mainly white, my best friends were white. Um, I think I integrated myself pretty well. Mm. I had a white boyfriend, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but yeah, when I started secondary school, you know, all girls school, you know what, like, that didn't mean much to me. Everyone thought I was going to a lesbian school, <laughs> you know what, I was like, whatever. Like, that was where I first met people, especially our form was quite diverse. It was when I first met people who were from backgrounds similar to mine. I became more aware of other cultures, which made me reflect on my own culture. But there wasn't, I'd say, like a British Chinese community. Mm. I never really felt that apart from when I went to yeah. Chinese Saturday school and primary school. It was always in the back of my mind, but I never really felt I had the opportunity to explore it. Yeah, so sometimes it became more that I was part of the British Asian community rather than the British Chinese community. Do you resonate more with your Tanzanian roots or black British culture? That is so interesting because I think one thing that society does is simplifies stuff like with bane <laughs> bane reminds me of the word bane like bane of your life anytime i see 
babe. Yeah. I'm like, what? what is that? Right? It just sounds like a derogatory term, in my opinion. Yeah, and it's so oversimplistic that it is kind of derogatory because you can't group all those people together. I'm not trying to say that the same applies for black British culture and the use of that as an identifier because I think that is really useful and I found a lot of safety and great space for me in black British spaces and I do resonate with that a lot as well because I'm Tanzanian, you know, but a lot of my experience growing up in England involved integrating and assimilating into white culture so I wasn't taught a lot of Tanzanian culture I can't speak Swahili. Black British is really useful and I do resonate with it, but I wish I resonated more with Tanzanian culture and being Tanzanian, because I do, of course. I, you know, eat Tanzanian food, and even if I didn't, I'm still Tanzanian. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? That's still who I am. Um, And surprisingly, I haven't encountered that many um, Tanzanian people here in the UK, apart from my own family, Um, and a couple of people at uni who I didn't even become friends with. (laughs) I have felt like I've missed out on that specific kind of community of Tanzanian people and people who relate, you know, to like those inside jokes that you'd have to explain otherwise because we grew up with these things. Yeah, that's really interesting because for me... There are a lot of Chinese people in the UK, especially recently, especially with international students. Um, So at university, it's very common for me to be mistaken as an international student. But then when I befriend Chinese international students, they see me as white or British. They don't see me as Chinese, but my home friends, they see me as Chinese. I think I had a hard time distinguishing myself as a British Chinese person, I guess I didn't belong fully to either side. And I suppose I still don't. Mm. Um, so when I went on my recent trip back to China, I hadn't been in a few years because of COVID, it was strange because I was a foreigner, but not. Yeah, oh, I get you. I think it's only more recently I've realised that language and food isn't enough to tie you to culture. So I'm not fluent in Mandarin, but... It's conversational, um, mm. I communicate with my family in Mandarin, I can read and write basic, and food, I love Chinese food. If anyone asks me what I want to eat, I would usually say Chinese food. But then, it was my international friends who made me realise that I didn't actually know a lot about my culture. Mm. Um, I think what I found with some of my friends who are more connected with their culture, I think a lot of it is due to religion. I don't have that. I don't know if religion actually ties you to your culture more, though. Oh. That is so hard. I think it's so complex. Um, And I don't actually know how I would even define culture. Because there's people... um, Perhaps they have a better understanding of my food and traditions than I do you know and that doesn't make them Tanzanian if they're not you know so it's like it is really tricky how do you know if you're Chinese enough how do I know if I'm Tanzanian enough (laughs) I think the answer is that we don't we just try our best 
Because I think you learning from your like international friends connects you more to your Chinese hood. Because now you know, oh, I don't know the holidays, go and learn them. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Maybe it's that human condition of always wanting more, like wanting to feel more connected, wanting to feel more connected to that part of ourselves. I think it's really sad sometimes as well to feel like you've lost something. Because I can't speak to my grandma, for example, and that is a loss. But I think being immigrants means that our identities are going to be quite complex ones. Like, all we can do is try, you know. I don't... Will we ever be fully one or the other? I don't think so. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, and I think it's also a question of will we ever be satisfied? Mm, yeah. Because there's always more to learn. The grass is always green on the other side. Um, I think a big one for me is, yeah, worried that I'll lose a lot of culture once my parents pass away. Yeah. Um, even with my grandma, I only have one surviving grandparent left. And our communication is very limited because we both converse in our second languages. Mandarin is her second language. Her first language is Cantonese. And oh. I don't speak Cantonese. I think growing up in the UK, I've always felt that as a loss because a lot of um, overseas Chinese in the UK, they speak Cantonese. I found it to be quite rare actually to meet another British Chinese person who speaks Mandarin. Oh, I see. But I think that's probably just situational because I have family friends in London who've said that that's not the case. Yeah. I have family in London who said the same thing. When I expressed that I don't meet many Tanzanian people, they've said, well, there's like 20 down our street, you know? So I do think as well, it's situational. Yeah. It's where you grow up. Yeah, and who you encounter. It's so strange. Yeah, but it, it does feel... There is something sad about thinking about like where I'm from, where I was born and or not even, it's not about birth but it, there is something sad about thinking about my home country as it were and knowing that it would actually be difficult for me to settle there without help from family members, you know, helping me integrate and learn how to do things. Now onto relationships. <laughs> So you're another one of my friends who has been successful with dating apps. Do you have any funny or interesting stories from before you got into your current relationship? Well, I was dating men before I got into my current relationship. So there was a lot of humour and turmoil. <laughs> a funny story that I have is there was, oh my gosh, there was this American once that I met and we met in a club and we like we were just having a really funny conversation about politics and like a little argument in the club can you imagine <laughs> but that's that's my type apparently <laughs> yeah we got outside of the club and I asked him for his number and he was like come home with me and I was like no just give me your Instagram or something yeah and then he was like no I won't give my Instagram it's either now or never <laughs> I was like men have anything it's audacity yeah. <laughs> so i mean i said no and i never saw him again obviously good riddance very much so but that is just one of the many examples of just 
men being weird. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything from apps? Oh, oh my gosh. Dating apps are just a strange place. During COVID, I tried this dating app called Timey, Tamey, I don't know how to say it, but it's basically an LGBTQ plus dating app. This is not an ad. <laughs> don't use it, okay? Because I didn't enjoy it. The men on there who are really weird, who will message you like really strange things. And that is why when I went on Tinder before meeting my current partner, we met on Tinder, but I set my Tinder to all women because I was just like, I'm done with men on dating apps. I'm done. <laughs> How have you found the dating process different when talking to women rather than men? Not to say that women aren't weird, but they have been more normal. Or maybe it's just me feeling more comfortable around women and able to um, open up with them and connect with them more easily. So yeah, that's been my experience. With my girlfriend now, it felt like we didn't have to explain anything. You know, we just kind of understood and it just was immediate comfort. Not immediate, obviously it takes time to get to know someone, but I think when I was dating men, you know, you meet them first and you're like, first I have to make sure they won't kill me. You know, so, <laughs> you know what I mean though? You have to make sure they're not a real weirdo first yeah. before you can even think about their personality and getting close to them. Yeah. And maybe that means my guard is too low for women, but yeah, the process has just been easier with women for me. Understanding each other is yeah, more so. effortless. What about pickup lines? Are the pickup lines different? <laughs> oh <laughs> my gosh, that's so funny. Are the pickup lines different? Less. less there's pick less pickup lines. Most of the time, you can start a conversation by saying hi with like some cute emojis or like you're so pretty and normally it's kind of enough or you look at something in their profile, you start a conversation based on that. It's more of those genuine conversations that show interest in you. There aren't many pickup lines that I've encountered when dating women, but maybe that's just who I've been dating. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So beyond dating, you've also used apps to find friends. How is the experience of making friends online different to in person? So this past year, I've been away from uni. So I haven't had that community um, and my friends from university, I haven't been living near them. So it's been harder to stay connected. So something I did was go on Bumble Friends and make friends. It was really cool, actually. I would say that I found it much easier than making friends in person. Really? Yeah. I like making friends in person and I think I get on quite easily with people in person, but I would go into new spaces where I didn't know anyone with the intention of making friends and it would just be really overwhelming and scary <laughs> to do that. So when you're in this online space, you're in the comfort of your home and everyone on the app wants to make friends as well, it just is so much easier. You could like look at people's profiles and know that they like similar things to you and then just talk about those things and then learn more things. And I've made some really good friends on there actually. And some of them I've met up with and we've gone to concerts and stuff. And some of them I haven't yet and it's just been online. Yeah, I really enjoyed it actually. It does take effort, that's the thing, as any friendship 
does you have to you know reply to messages and stuff and you have to put effort into learning about each other but i really enjoyed it and i think it made me realize something that is kind of different about those relationships from childhood or our friendship for example because we don't necessarily have the same hobbies or, or interests but we still have a friendship if that makes sense yeah like i would make friends on the app who also like steven universe or listen to the same music and we don't do that but we don't need that so it just was really interesting for me i guess notice that i don't know i still haven't decided why that is or whether it makes a difference yeah i think that encapsulates different friends for different things yeah but yeah that's really interesting because I just know that I can't date online, so I'm not sure I'll be very good at making friends online either. Mm. For me, it's kind of just like, I don't believe that the person on the other end is a real person. Oh, you think they're a catfish? I don't know. Um, but I think that's because I'm a, you know, pretty paranoid person. Which I think is good sometimes, because they could be. <laughs> <laughs> You gotta do that video call and you meet them in a public place (laughs) just in case. Mm. As our lives get busier, it becomes harder to find time for friendship and time to make new friends. And we spend so much of our lives online. It just kind of made sense. I still think there's something special about meeting people in person. A meet cute, whatever you want to call it. (laughs) And I think what's harder is maintaining friendships rather than making new ones. Yeah. As I'm getting older, I'm realising the importance of community and having multiple people there to support and love you, you know? And just how important friendships like this are. Yeah, so thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, (laughs) Shaz. I had so much fun. I have had so much fun as well. Thank you for listening to me talk and talk. (laughs) (laughs) It's my favourite thing to do. Oh, but this has been so fun. 